the middle of chapter 6, which is entitled The Adventures of Eustace. This is where um, Eustace has wandered away from the group because he doesn't want to do the work on the ship. And he's wandered away from the group. He's found a dead dragon. He's found the lair of the dead dragon. Uh, Of course, there's great treasure there. If he had been reading the right books, he would know that dragons guard something. Most of the time, dragons guard treasure. So he goes in there and he finds, uh, sees all that treasure, and he falls asleep on the treasure. That's where we left him at last week. Um, So he fell asleep on the treasure, and the people back at the shore from the boat are looking for him. Uh, they're trying to figure out where he's at. You know, he's, he's, he's gone somewhere. Um, but Eustace wakes up. And Eustace first wakes up. You notice what he thought. He thought there was a dragon beside him. Then he thought there was a dragon on the other side of him. Because everywhere he looked, he saw dragonish skin. Well, then eventually he goes and he sees his reflection. And he realizes he is the dragon. Now, you may remember, hopefully, you talked about this in high school, when hopefully you had to take Greek and Roman mythology. You may remember Narcissus, Narcissus, from whom we get the title Narcissism. Narcissus was that mythological, mythological figure who was handsome and beautiful he was so handsome and beautiful, he fell in love with his own reflection in a pool. So when you see pools in literature, particularly C.S. Lewis, think Narcissus. Except here the opposite happens. When he looks in the pool, when Eustace looks in the pool, he realizes what he's become. He sees who he really is. It's not these other dragons. He's the dragon now. Uh, because part of what you learn, like on page 91, uh, when the short paragraph on page 91 in my edition, he had turned into a dragon while he was asleep. He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart. He had become a dragon himself. Uh, core Christian conviction. You don't act your way into a new life, you think your way into a new life. Um, Let me illustrate it using Bible. Whether you're reading the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, um, or the others to a certain extent, Paul always starts with theology after he greets you. He starts with theology, and then he gets to practical Christian living. You've got to get your thinking straight before your actions get straight. If you have a lot of bizarre roadmaps in your brain, if you have a lot of what um, Paul calls strongholds of of the devil, if you have a lot of um, um, bad uh, bad ideas, if you have a lot of false truth, if you have a lot of false teaching, or even as my father used to say before he died, if you have a lot of notions in your head, it's going to determine how you live. Uh, again, you think your way into right living. You don't really act your way into right thinking. That's why, you know, you might eat 
carrots and lettuce for a month trying to lose weight. But if you don't change your brain and your thinking about how you care for yourself, yeah, that, that diet will not become a lifestyle. You have to change your thinking. So again, that's why the, the Apostle Paul says stuff like, take on the mind of Christ, which means you have to get rid of the mind of the devil if you're going to do that. Take on the mind of Christ. Think the thoughts of Jesus. You've got to work on your brain. Uh, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, take every thought captive for Christ. If you've got unchrist-like thoughts, work on that. Uh, don't work on the behavior. Work on the thinking. You can work on the behavior also. But if you just work on the behavior and you don't change the thinking, uh, the behavior will control. You'll keep doing what you've been doing. Even, even if you don't get, you know, what's the definition of insanity? To keep doing what you've been doing and think you're going to get something different. Well, the reason we keep doing what we're doing and we keep doing it even though we don't get anything different is we don't change our thinking. So it's a, it's a Christian concept. You've got to take on the mind of Christ. You've got to renew the mind. These are all Bible verses. You've got to renew the mind. Then right living follows. That's why heresy, false teaching, is not just a novelty. It's bad because it leads to ungodly living. You've got to work on your thinking. And again, if you read Harlequin romances all day long, that's not going to help your thinking. You know, the computer people tell us garbage in, garbage out. So we have something to do with our thoughts. When the apostle says, take your, cap your thoughts captive to Christ, he's not being delusional about human nature. You can work on your thinking. What are you putting into your mind? What are you watching? What's your entertainment? Who's forming your values? Anyway, if you go and lay on a dragon's lair and think dragonish thoughts about greed, guess what? You may wake up and be a dragon. That's what happened to Eustace. So pay attention to your thoughts. And, you know, don't just act like they come from nowhere. You are responsible. The, the word responsible means we have the ability to respond. You know, sometimes you have to talk to yourself. Hope you know that. Um, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. In the Psalms, you have opportunities to talk to yourself. When you look at the Psalms, sometimes the psalmist is talking to you. Sometimes the psalmist is talking to God. Sometimes the psalmist is talking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In other words, if you want to do contemporary language, I don't care how I feel, I've got to bless the Lord. I, you know, I mean, there's times I'll talk to myself and say, Jeff, you're really being stupid. You, need, you know, just think of what stupid looks like and don't do it. Sometimes you have to talk to yourself. And, and make sure, you can't just, well, there's a thought. It came from my great-grandmother, and I have no responsibility over it. We have to form our thinking we have to renew the mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Without the renewing of the mind, there's no transformation. So I don't care if it is a well-beloved notion 
that your great-grandmother gave you. You you need to evaluate, reflect, and work on changing that. You think dragonish thoughts, you'll become a beast. I hope you notice how many times in, in, in the rest of this chapter, in chapter 7, they, they talked about, and this was just being English, but they talked about Eustace being beastly. Well, yeah, you should kind of think that's funny. He turned into a dragon. Yeah, he was beastly. We become beastly and it's not quite so obvious to the people around us sometimes. Anyway, so notice what happened to Eustace. Yeah. Um, but also notice... He was a better dragon than he was a little boy. You know, um, on the next page, page 92, um, he realized that he was a monster cut off from the whole human race and appalling loneliness came over him. On the ship, he just wanted to be left alone. He, didn't like, he thought everybody else was fiends on the ship. But now an appalling loneliness came over him. He began to see that the others had not really been fiends at all. He began to wonder if he himself had been such a nice person, as he has always supposed. Yeah, we can convince ourselves of amazing, ridiculous things. Yeah, he, up to this point, he thought he had always been a nice person. He longed for their voices he would have even been grateful for a kind, for a kind word, even from Reepicheep. So uh, he he starts the transformation when he sees who he is, when he sees what he has become. By the way, do you know what the word confession means? Literally, to confess, con means with, fess means speak. Comes from speak. So when we confess to God, we are saying to God what God says about us. We are seeing ourselves as God sees us. In other words, we're in need of redemption. We're in need of saving. We're in need of salvaging. We're in need of delivering. We're in need of Jesus. We're in need of grace. So until you confess, say with God, speak the truth about the human condition, yeah, there's no change. Coming. If you think you got your act together, you think you've been nice, you cherish the notions you have in your mind, there's going to be no transformation. Well, here's Eustace. He, he sees who he really is now. So something starts happening. So um, he, he even has developed dragon taste. You know, he, he's going to start eating flesh as a dragon. He can fly. So... Um, you know, the story goes on. The story goes on. Um, they, you know, the, the other folks who don't know what's happened to Eustace at this point, notice how, notice how C.S. Lewis tells the story of Eustace telling the story of his saving. C.S. Lewis is a big fan of stories and how stories can transform people. Anyway, so um, Eustace has um, become a very sad dragon, He's, 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 he's crying those big, sad crocodile tears. Um, when he encounters the rest of the people as a dragon, even his um, crocodile tears, they think they're crocodile tears, they, they don't trust the dragon. That, that makes perfect sense. They don't trust the dragon. And then chapter 6 ends with a, I guess we call them now a cliffhanger, um, everyone had now crowded around to watch the treatment, the dragon. And Caspian suddenly exclaimed, Look, 
he was staring at a bracelet. That's the way chapter 6 ends. So you say, ha, I wonder what this bracelet's all about. Well, again, this is the bracelet that Eustace had put on before he went to sleep. So when he became a dragon, the, he expanded, but the bracelet, the bracelet didn't expand, right? So it's painful, it's painful. But he's still got this little bracelet on his big arm or his big leg. He's got this little bracelet on and um, it's hurting him. But here the others, when they encounter the dragon, they see the bracelet. And Caspian, who, who did the bracelet belong to? I like, I like this name. Get your, get, somebody, get, get your kids to name your grandchild this. I like Lord Octesian. You learn on the next, beginning of the next chapter. That, 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 that bracelet has the family insignia of Lord Octesian. So at that point, Caspian thinks this, this dragon either ate, because that's one of the lords they're looking for, right? One of the lords of, of, of Narnia they're looking for. So they you know, think, well, either this dragon ate Lord Artesian or some enchantment came on Lord Artesian and he's become a dragon. Um, they don't know yet. It's um, Eustace. And of course, um, of course, Reepicheep's the one ready to battle the dragon. The little mouse is ready to battle the big dragon. We like Reepicheep. Anyway, um, Eustace tries, you know, Eustace, they, they play like 20 questions. When they, feel like, when they realize this may be Lord Octesian turned into a dragon, they start asking the dragon questions. Um, you know, are you Lord Arctesian? Octesian? Um, finally, they say, um, you're, you know, he's answering yes and no, shaking his dragon head, trying to answer the questions the kids are giving them and, and the crew are giving them. Finally, finally um, Lucy or Edmund said at first, you don't know which one, you're not not Eustace by any chance. Because again, remember they've missed Eustace, but trying to find Eustace. Eustace nodded his terrible dragon head and thumped his tail in the sea and everyone skipped back. Yeah, he got excited. You know, it's kind of like when somebody, you know, gets your charade. You get excited. So that Eustace is happy. They finally figured out this is Eustace. Um, so here they've got an issue. They got a problem. Eustace is a dragon. And they are better to Eustace than Eustace has ever been to them. So Eustace begins to be helpful. Remember, he flies away and brings them back a new mast for the ship. He, he, he functions as a heater and a hot water bottle for them on cold nights. Because you may not know this, but dragons are very hot-natured. Um, they breathe fire. So the dra- again, he's much better a dragon than he was at being a little boy. Um, and if you notice on page 102, it says the pleasure for Eustace, quite new to him, of being liked and still more of liking other people was what kept Eustace from despair. I hope you notice in this section how Eustace was changing. Uh, he was being nice to people, and that was new for him, and people liking him, that was really new for him. But that's what kept him from despair. He's a dragon. What are you going to do with the dragon? Because again... You know what the problem's going to become. How do we take this dragon with us on our ship? That's going to be the problem. You notice during this period, um, Reepicheep, as the book says, Reepicheep was his, Eustace's, most constant comforter. 
You even got a picture of sketching there by Pauline Baines on page 103 of Eustace comforting, I mean of uh, Reba Cheap comforting Eustace the, the dragon. I like Reba Cheap. When I grow up, I want to be a mixture of Reba Cheap and Lucy. Um, Reba Cheap was not treated well by Eustace, but, but Reba Cheap is honorable. Reaper Cheap does his duty. Reaper Cheap is courageous and brave. So Reaper Cheap is, is being the most constant comfort to poor Eustace at this point. And notice he, he even tells Eustace a bunch of stories because poor Eustace never read the right books. So, so Reaper Cheap is telling them stories, you know, on page 103. A hundred examples of emperors, kings, dukes, knights, poets, lovers, astronomers, philosophers, and magicians who had fallen from prosperity into the most distressing circumstances and somehow overcame them. Um, so, yeah, Reba Cheap's trying to encourage and comfort uh, Eustace the dragon. And it says Eustace never forgot it. Well, anyway, there's the problem. How, how, what are they going to do with this dragon? We can't leave him. He can't fly the whole time we're sailing. Can we put him on one half of the ship and move everything else to the other half of the ship? So they're trying to figure out the problem. Well, after six days, it's Edmund who discovers um, early one morning, discovers Eustace, the, the, the boy again. Um, you know, he has to kind of figure it out as Eustace, because by this point they're used to Eustace being a dragon. But uh, Edmund discovers Eustace, and, and, of course, the question is, what has happened, Eustace? You were a dragon, now you're not a dragon. Talk, talk to me. You notice on the page of, top of page 106, and this tells you a lot about sharing your faith in Jesus Christ. This tells a lot about sharing your story. Notice what the increasingly better Eustace says. At top of page 106, I won't tell you how I became a dragon, dot, dot, dot. I want to tell you how I stopped being one. I've heard testimonies from people that included more about how sinful they were than they included how great Jesus Christ is. Don't focus on how you became a dragon. You need to know that. Don't focus on your dragonish life. What you need to tell people is how you quit being a dragon. Hey, quit being a dragon. So, at this point, uh, Eustace tells the story. And again, C.S. Lewis is, is doing it this way because C.S. Lewis, throughout his life, wrote a great deal about the power of stories. The power of stories to change. The power of stories to captivate. Uh, the power of stories to do evangelism. The power of stories to, to, to do apologetics which is what he's doing in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's telling you stories, and he's sort of um, sneaking Christian faith in, sneaking Christian ideas in, sneaking a Christian worldview in. Well, as Christians, you know what all this is about. Now, I'm going to read a little while. This is worth paying attention to. This may be the most famous section of almost any, other than maybe the death and resurrection of Aslan in the line of the witch in the wardrobe. This may be your, your, your second most famous part. So here's Edmund telling the story. You know, he's asleep. 
Um, well, in, I'm on page 106, down at the bottom, last paragraph beginning. Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge line. Well, you know who this line is. Eustace didn't know at this point. A huge line coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the line was. Bible, for a moment, the Shekinah glory, the glory that shines around the presence of God, the glory that shone around Jesus at his transfiguration, the Shekinah glory. So yeah, you're not surprised that this is a glowing line because you know who this line is. Anyway, there's no moon out, but there's moonlight, moonlight where the line was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid, but notice the kind of fear. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any line out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it. If you, under, if you can understand. I hope you know about the fear of God. The Bible says a lot about the fear of God. In some ways, the controlling motivation in our life should be the fear of God. Uh, the Bible says a lot about the fear of God. Now, so you need to ask, what does that fear of God mean? Well, C.S. Lewis, one time, and I think it was Christianity Today in its early days, ran an article on C.S. Lewis and asked him, what were your top most Top 10 most influential books. And by the way, I've read all 10. I commend all 10 of them if you want to be curious. I give you the list. One of them was, and I actually had to read this in graduate school. It was, it was a very significant book in the 1920s. Um, it, it was a book by Rudolf, Rudolf Otto called Something About the Holy. Anyway, you can Google Rudolf Otto, the only book that's still out there. He wrote in the 20s. It's not The Pursuit of the Holy. That's A.W. A. Tozer. Um, it's something about holy. But in that book, what Otto speaks of, and this had a big impact on C.S. Lewis, is he, he, the word numinous. And maybe I wish we used the word numinous as opposed to fear. We should... We sh if you have a numinous experience, it is a kind of fearful experience. But in Rudolf Otto's book, he, he, he makes an illustration. You know, if, if, if I see a rattlesnake in my bedroom and I see, I, I see my mother who died 20 years ago her spirit, or whatever in my bedroom, or an angel in my bedroom. Let's do it that way. Your fear of that rattlesnake and your fear of that angel, or your fear of that rattlesnake, your fear of... C.S. Lewis said Joey Davidman came back and visited him after her death. Your, you know, whatever it was. Those are two kinds of fear, right? Um, the, the fear, and again, every angel that appears has to say What? Do not be afraid. That's a different fear than seeing a tiger or a rattlesnake in your bedroom. It is an awe. Maybe that's a better term, an awe, A-W-E. Um, so the, when we experience the numinous, when we experience God, the sacred, 
the divine. When we have those thin places in life where heaven and earth come very, very close together, and I hope you've had them, that emotion should be in a category all by itself. And sometimes we, in the Bible, it is called the fear, fear of God. It means you're having a numinous experience. And um, back to Eustace, it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it. Yeah, I'm not afraid that God's going to hurt me. But, you know, if he shows up in a very powerful way, you're going to have some weird emotions. You know, I, I mean, if... if, if, if if God shows up in your life, if God shows up in a very powerful way, and it feels just like your neighbor from next door coming to check on you, something's going on in your life. I mean, when it's God, you're in a whole different realm. It's a different emotion. It's a different kind of fear. A great, 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 great respect. And that word is not even right. When you experience the numinous, and we don't, most of us don't get many of those experiences in life, but they change you. They change you. You know, if I experience a rattlesnake, it'll just remind me how much I hate rattlesnakes. I don't know if it'll change me. It might keep me out of certain places. But if you experience God, I mean, really experience God, it changes you. That's the kind of fear that's being spoken of here. Um, good theology, again, just read this to your grandkids, and you know what it's all about. And your kids, as they grow up, this, this good theology will have some meaning to them. Anyway, I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, again, until you've eaten an orange, how can somebody explain to you what an orange tastes like? Until you've been in the presence of God. You can't understand it. But once you've been in the presence of God, you'll never forget it. Anyway, if you can understand it, Eustace says. Anyways, because he's telling the story to Edmund. Well, it came close to me and looked straight into my eyes. Here the holy wants to be intimate. Looked straight into my eyes and I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean, watch this. You mean it spoke? I... I I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to come to do what it told me, so I got up and followed it. The voice of God. I hope you hear the voice of God, but I hope you have a really hard time explaining to other people what it means to hear the voice of God. You know, I hear the voice of God. You know, but I have to be careful. Some people might lock me away somewhere if I tell them I've heard the voice of God. God speaks, but it's not like my wife speaking to me. But God speaks. You read the Bible to hear the voice of God. You worship to encounter God. Again, to go back to some basic C.S. Lewis, basic theology. There's only two, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who accept the supernatural and those who won't. Those who accept the supernatural are the only ones that have the option of becoming a Christian. I don't know what it is these other people are doing. Um, anyway, the voice of God is something very different and unique. and He speaks to us, but it sure is hard to explain. Um, so he does what the voice of God told him to do. And it led me a long way into the mountains 
You have to follow, you have to follow, you have to follow. And there was always this moonlight over and around the line, uh, wherever you went, the Shekinah glory. So at last we came to the top of a mountain. I mean, Eustace might say, okay, Edmund, if you don't understand this, a mountaintop experience for me. He came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before. And on the top of the mountain, there was a garden. Lots of images about garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. That's where water is. Water of life, fountain. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it, but it was a lot bigger than most wells. Like a very big round bath. As soon as you hear the word bath, your Christian mind should go to baptism like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. That's literally how we used to build baptistries. In the earliest days of the Christian church, we baptized all ages, but we baptized everybody by immersion. That's why the Greek Orthodox still to this day immerse infants. And we used to build baptistries with steps, because this is exactly the way Jews built mikvahot. This is exactly the way Jews built uh, um, ritual washing pools. They were deep enough for immersion, you had steps going down into them. So this is the image of historic Christian baptistry. Uh, it was very big with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg, you know, where that metal ring is, but the line told me I must undress first. You can't take any of your hellish ways into heaven. You need to leave your hellish ways behind. Now, you're going to notice from the rest of the story, all of Eustace's hellish ways are not left behind after Aslan does to him what Aslan does, but as the book will tell you, the cure has begun. So the cure from hellish to heavenly ways is what coming to faith means. You, 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 the cure has begun to change us from the inside out from hellish to heavenly ways. So here, here the line says to... And by the way, we used to baptize in the nude. Men and women were baptized separately. We have lots of documents from the earliest Christian history. You went down in the nude, you came up, we put a white robe on you to symbolize new life. Anyway, the line told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if it said any words out loud or not. Back to the voice. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on. He's dragon. When I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things. Now, when you hear snake, you should go to Genesis 3, Revelation 12. Snake, dragon, devil. Uh, he, he, finally, he, say, he thinks dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Aren't we grateful for that? Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the line means. So Eustace, he says, I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I were a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of this dragon skin. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But 
Just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. If you think you can undress yourself, that's as stupid as some of our New Year's resolutions that don't make it to the middle of January. We can't change ourselves through self-help. We can't change ourselves through finding the right motivational speaker. We can't change ourselves by just working on our willpower. I mean, I think everybody in this room knows the frustration of wanting to do better but not. Go read Romans chapter 7 at the end. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The, the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. That's the human condition. If you think you on your own can enter this new life, you're going to learn frustration. I don't even usually make it the second week of January. I'm frustrated before the first weekends of January. You know, it's always amazing because I'm one of them. I go back with the other five million people to my gym the first week of January. <laughs> so I've learned to not do that. You can't do this stuff on your own power. Now, human nature is so delusional, people think they can. People think they can. Eustace thinks he can. But before he gets in the water, the dragonish nature comes back. Um, oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left the second skin lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, how, however many skins have I got to take off? For I longed to bathe my leg, because his leg was hurting. I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the, other, the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. He's back to being a dragon. Then the lion said... But I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. Confession, repentance, cleansing that can only come from God through Jesus Christ. You will have to let me undress you. But you notice Eustace has to allow Aslan to undress him. You will have to let me undress you. You know, I still run across good Christian people they're trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And they're so delusional they don't realize they don't have any bootstraps. But they're trying to pull themselves up from them. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. Line, his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. Sometimes desperation can help us spiritually. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it was going to, that it was that it had gone right into my heart. And when it began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of, of a sore place, it hurts like like bilio. I don't know what that means. It's an English word, I guess. It hurts. We'd have other words. It hurts a whole lot, but it is such fun to see it coming away. 
I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Remember, because this became important at the end of the chapter, remember Eustace became a dragon, but Edmund became a traitor to his siblings in the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. So yeah, Edmund says, I, I know exactly what you mean. Well, he peeled the beastly, beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. Yeah, we don't know how to sanctify ourselves. We want to sanctify ourselves without any pain, without any pruning, without any loss, without, any, without letting go of anything, without changing anything. That's why we don't make it very far. When the Spirit of Christ works on us, yeah, it can hurt. We're being pruned. It's going to involve loss. We're going to have to walk away from some things and walk to some other things. Yeah, he said he tried it, you know, three other times. But when he did it, it didn't even hurt. But what Aslan's doing is hurting. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I as smooth and soft as a pilled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath. He's, he's newborn. He's very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. Yeah, this is Eustace's baptism. It smarted like anything. But baptism is a sign of death. When I baptize your infant or when I baptize a 95-year-old, I'm declaring that person needs to die. Paul says baptism is an identification with, with, uh, with the death of Christ. That infant needs to die to self. That 90-year-old needs to die to self. That's why it doesn't make a difference about the age. Baptism... Paul says this in the book. Baptism is an identification with the death and burial of Christ. So again, I'm baptizing your little babies because they're sinful and they need to die to self. Same true for anybody else that comes to anybody else in older age. They need to die to self and 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 and, and experience new life. Anyway, that's why that's why his undragonings didn't hurt because they. That's why we do it. We we want to grow in Christ likeness. But we don't want to change. We don't want to give up anything. We don't want to lose anything. We may lose a friend or two. We may have a family member that doesn't understand. The list goes on. When Jesus works in our life, it's going to be a little painful. And you, if anyone is to follow me, he must pick up his cross. That's a symbol of execution. He must pick up his cross, deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow after me. Well, Jesus, we want to follow just no, none of this painful stuff. We want to follow, but we just want to add you to an already busy life. We want to follow, but we just want you as, as a little religious department of our life when we need a little comfort or inspiration or motivation. And Jesus says, no. If you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, die to self, baptism, die to self, and, and follow me. You've got to pick up your cross. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, die to self. In the ancient world, when somebody saw someone carrying a cross, like when they saw Jesus, they knew what that meant. He's on his way to death. You know, that's why, please don't talk about, you know, the cross you're bearing is a sore toenail. That's not quite strong enough for what the cross means. It means death to self. 
Yeah, we, we want to be changed and transformed and have our best life now and all that. We just don't want any pain involved. We, we want very little change involved. We don't even want discomfort or inconvenience involved. But usually great pain involved. Uh, that's why John Wesley told his preachers to preach on John 15 every year, once a year. Because that's where Jesus says, you know, he has to prune us. I mean, I've never had a plant respond to my pruning, but I think if a plant could speak, a plant would say, this hurts when I'm lopping off limbs and growth. Uh, stuff that they have to get rid of in order to really prosper spiritually. Anyway, throws them in the water. It smarted like, like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. Following Christ makes us more and more human. In the sense... Not human, fallen human, which is what we are by birth. Becoming, following Christ makes us more human in regards to the humans that God wants us to be. Those of you that are doing great divorce, you notice that the point of heaven is that's where we finally become who we're, we were created to be. We're fallen in this world. But if you want to really be who you're created to be, that takes Jesus in your life. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they're no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with a Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. Yeah, he, he was glad to see his little skinny boy arms back. After a bit, the line took me out and he dressed me. There's so much language in the Bible in our hymnody about being clothed with Christ. It comes from the Apostle Paul again. We have to take off the dirty garments, and be clothed in Christ. Um, that clothing in Christ, what you see up to this point is what we theologically, theologically call justification, being made right. That's being born again, that's being saved, that's coming to faith in Christ, that's receiving the new life. That's justification. But as soon as that happens, you're not finished, I hope you know that. Sanctification has to begin. And you spend the rest of your life being sanctified, being made holy, being made like the person Christ wants you to be. So um, you get dressed, which by the way, that's why we light the Paschal candle when we baptize someone, and then we light the Paschal candle the next time and put it beside that person's casket. Those are the two times we use it. Because, you know, you begin the journey, then you make the journey. That journey of growing in grace, that journey of maturing, that journey of changing, being pruned and changed, that's what we call sanctification. And that's where you're going to see Eustace from this point on. He's a much better boy. He's still not perfect, but he's a much better boy. He actually becomes so good that when he goes home, his mother doesn't like him anymore. But he, he changes, so the process has to happen. So that's, that's the undragoning. He's been undragoned. The way I say it is justification gets you out of hell. Sanctification gets the hell out of you. It's a process. So you've got to somehow, you know, once you've been set right, once you've been clothed in Christ, once you've been given a new status, once you've received the new life, you, you, you keep going on. You know, hopefully when you step over into heaven, it'll be a great change. 
But hopefully when you step over into heaven, it won't be as great a change as you think it may be. Because you've been heading toward that for however long you've lived the Christian life. You've let go of more and more hellish ways and you've taken on more and more heavenly ways. So that when you get to heaven, it will feel like home to you. Um, I don't want you to get to hell and that feel like home to you. That's the problem. When you get to heaven, I want that to feel like home to you. Again, for the, all of you that read The Great Divorce, you know all about that. But um, that's the process of sanctification. Anyway, and I want you to notice, um, as you get, well, one thing I like, because uh, at the bottom of 110, you know, you know, Eustace starts to apologize to Edmund. He wants to apologize to everybody now because he's been terrible up to this point. Uh, notice that's all right, said Edmund, because ourselves, between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia, lying the witch in the wardrobe, when he about sold his siblings out to the white witch. And I love the next sentence. You were only an ass, but I was a traitor. Um, yeah, he used the word ass. I kind of, I'm glad it's there because my wife tells me by nature I would be an ass. <laughs> That's why, you know, if I look at my wife and say, well, this is just who I am. This is how I was born. This is who I am by nature. My wife knows my family. <laughs> my wife knows my heritage. You know, we were Scott Irish up in the mountains. I remember hearing the story about a great uncle who did something really bad, and he just, he just went away. I'm sure we shot him and buried him in the backyard. That's mountain justice among the Scot-Irish. So my, my wife knows, you know, but, and she's grateful that I, I realize part of the Christian faith is getting over who you are by nature, getting over who you are by birth, be born again, and become somebody different. Yeah, but I, I, even Edmund here, he, he's, he learned. You were only an ass, but I was a traitor. When he was in the process of being a traitor, just so he could eat some more um, Turkish delight, yeah, he was having a good time, but he's grown. He looks back now. Well, don't tell me about it then, said Eustace. But then notice Eustace, who is Aslan? Do you know him? Aslan's working in the... In, I'll leave this for you to cogitate. Aslan is working in Eustace's life, and, and he doesn't know everything about Aslan at this point. He doesn't even know who he is. You know, God's work is... It's like we had a bishop back in the 30s who said, you need to know God needs you, but not very much. God can do great stuff even in spite of you. God can do great stuff even when you don't realize He's doing it. But who is Aslan? Do you know him? Well, he knows me. Again, I baptize infants in our tradition. Everybody doesn't have to do that. I baptize infants to declare God knows this infant before this infant knows God. Before this infant can read the Bible, recite a creed, listen to a sermon, God already knows all about this infant. Always know that you and God didn't meet halfway. God came after you. While we were yet sinners, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, while we were still in rebellion, while we couldn't have cared less, Christ died for us. 
So yeah, the initiative is all with God. We just respond, which is why we're, it's good that we have responsibility, the ability to respond. We respond. So, well, he knows me, said Edmund. He is the great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea who saved me and saved Narnia. We're all, we've all seen him. Lucy sees him most often. Again, I want to be loose and reap cheap when I grow up. And it may be, maybe, as in this country, we're selling to, and they are, and spoiler alert, reap a cheap is the one who goes on, and the rest go back. Reap a cheap, when he gets that close to Aslan's land, he's going all the way. So, they then go, and I'm sure you notice this, you know, they go back, you know, um, after this conversation between Eustace and Edmund, they go back to the camp, they have breakfast together. They share a meal together. Again, a lot of Christian thought should pop in your mind at this point, whether it's Holy Communion, whether it's the meal that Jesus ate with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee following his resurrection. Um, and you notice then in the, in, in the same paragraph, uh, people wondered... Um, anyway, they're having breakfast around the camp, and now, of course, everyone heard the earlier part of his story. People wonder, people wondered whether the other dragon had killed the Lord Artesian several years ago, or whether Lord Artesian had become that old dragon that Eustace saw die. The jewels with which Eustace had crammed his pockets in the cave disappeared along with the clothes he had been wearing, but no one, least of all Eustace himself, felt any desire to go back to that valley for more treasure. Even his greed was dealt with. You know, I'm sure they could have said, well, we can use this money for good, and they could have convinced themselves and rationalized their greed. But they know not to be possessed by anything but God. And so they, the greed's even gone at this point. They don't even go back to the treasure. So you see what happens at the very end, and we're finished. Uh, they put a plaque up, Dragon Island, they've named it now, Dragon Island, discovered by Caspian X, King of Narnia, etc., in the fourth year of his reign, here as we suppose the Lord Octesian had his death. You know, whether or not he was eaten by the dragon or he was that dragon that you saw die earlier. So they put kind of a, a monument up. So let's finish the chapter. It would be nice and fairly, near, fairly nearly true to say that from... That time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those, most of those I shall not notice, says the author. The cure had begun. I hope the cure has begun in your life, and I hope you're very grateful for the cure beginning. And I hope that you're doing everything possible to let the cure continue in your life. The cure will get you over this world. The Lord Octesian's arm ring had a curious fate. This is just an interesting tidbit. Eustace did not want it. I'm sure he didn't. He didn't want a sign and a symbol of his early life. And offered it to Caspian, and Caspian offered it to Lucy. She did not care having it. Very well then, catch as catch can, said Caspian, and he flung it up into the air. This was when they were standing looking at the inscription. Up went the ring, flashing in the sunlight, and caught and hung as nearly as a well-thrown quoit. 
I had to go look that one up. I hope you did. You know what one of those are? It's an English game. It's like a horseshoe that's a total circle, and they throw them at stakes. So I guess we invented horseshoes. They just had circles, kind of like you do at the circus or the fair. You know, you throw the stake. They call it a hob. You throw the little circle, and it lands right on the hob, horseshoe. So it, um, it hung as neatly as a well-thrown quoit horseshoe on a little projection on the rock. No one could climb up to get it from below, and no one could climb down to get it from above. And there, for all we know, it hangs still. It's hanging still and may hang till the wor- that world ends. So there we are. An amazing chapter. Um, here, here's going to be your task. I want you to find a kid to read that to and try to read it without editorializing. But be grateful that you see all the other stuff that this chapter is about. And, and let that kid begin to learn what justification, sanctification is all about. You know, I uh, threw a lot of Bible at you, a lot of verses at you. Go read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. The Bible's full of this stuff. This is justification, sanctification. You know, um, outside the Bible, I don't think there's a better picture of justification and sanctification. So, um, you know, I've been tempted for years to do what I heard of that an Episcopal priest did. Just on Good Friday, read that. But I'm afraid I'd have to explain it. In this culture, I'd have to explain it to people. I'm not sure Christians understand justification and sanctification, even though your hymnal is divided into those categories. I'm not sure Christians understand justification and sanctification, how it occurs, what it is, who does it, and how sanctification continues. You know, in this culture, we just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We take care of ourselves. We just make sure the good outweighs the bad. Yeah, you know, for God's sake, literally for God's sake, Learn your book. Learn the Bible. Learn the Christian faith. You know, don't let go of terms like justification and sanctification. Make sure you know what it means to be justified, but more importantly, make sure you know you are justified. Saved, redeemed, delivered. Make sure you know what sanctification is, but make sure you're in the process. And sometimes in the process, there's, there's powerful moments that, you know, push you ahead further in your process of sanctification. But make sure you're in the process. So make sure you know what justification is and sanctification. Make sure that um, you're participating in both. Now I know the world around us, you say justification. If that was a question on Jeopardy, nobody would get it. But again, we're in a post-Christian culture. So at least let's make sure we as Christians get it. Again, I see Christian people sing Amazing Grace 70,000 times, and they still think it's all up to their effort. It's all up to the scales, the good outweighing the bad. You know, it's all up to that book that St. Peter's going to read one day to see if you're good outweigh. Yeah, and then they go right back and sing Amazing Grace again. You know, that, that's what Paul refers to as spiritual blindness. It's like trying to explain what an orange tastes like to someone who's never had one. But um, make sure you've had it. Make sure you have sought it and yearned for it till you don't have to have someone explain what an orange tastes like to you. You know what it tastes like. That's why the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't just hear somebody else talk about it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Let's pray together.